We're going to turn our attention now to the scriptures and we'll be looking into John's gospel and chapter 1. I believe personally that this is probably the most profound explanation of Christmas to be found in literature anywhere on the face of the earth. I'm interested in a profound explanation of Christmas because, as I've mentioned to you, we do have a remarkable ability to trivialize things. And in many ways, we're trivializing Christmas. And I trust that this study will serve to de-trivialize this for us. Listen to the words from John's prologue, that is, starting at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh, lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the succinct, profound statement that is an explanation of Christmas par excellence, is simply the Word became flesh. But having said that, it probably requires a little explanation. What did John, when he wrote the fourth gospel, have in mind when he talked about the Word? Well, we've noticed that he was addressing both a Hebrew population and a Greek or a Hellenized population. And the use of the term the word was a stroke of genius because whilst these cultures were very, very different, both of them thought in terms of this idea of the word, or in Greek, the logos. The Hebrews believed that the word of God was all-powerful. For instance, their story of creation has it very simply as follows. God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, And there was. It was the power of the Word of God that made things that did not exist leap into existence. That was how the Hebrews understood creation. So the writer to the epistle to the Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the heavens and the earth were created by the Word of God. So when John talks about the Word, they would understand that he was talking about the creative genius behind the world. The Greeks thought a lot about the logos. 
their great philosophers had talked for centuries about the Logos. The Logos, in their thinking, was the expression of an invisible, rational idea. Behind all things, they said, was a rational idea. They didn't think everything was an accident. They didn't think it was a mistake. They believed that there was a a rational entity behind all things that had an idea that brought things that did not exist into existence. They called that the Logos. Moreover, in the same way that a word is the expression of a rational idea, so the Logos, in their thinking, was the outward expression of that which is hidden behind the universe. John takes both these ideas and he said, let me tell you about the word a whole lot more than you realize. This is what he says. In the beginning, whatever the beginning of everything was, the word was already in a state of eternal existence. Not only so, the word was in intimate relationship with God. Not only so, the word was God himself. So he attributes to the word not only creative genius, but also divine fellowship. In fact, he says that the word is deity. Then he adds, in the word was life. We all understand that life exists, but nobody can define it. We can describe it. We can explain it. We can experience it. We can't define it. And the mystery of life is that it is rooted in the source of all life, who is the Word. So the Word, in the beginning, already had been, in a relationship with God, was God himself, and the Word is the source of all life. Not only that, he says, all things were created by him. In fact, in order that we get the immensity of that statement, he reverses it and he said there isn't anything that was made that was not made by him. He's talking about the Word. And then incredibly, he says, the Word, this immense being, became flesh. In other words, was born into the world. Now, when we think about Christmas, we obviously think of nativity scenes. We think of a baby... We think of a a pregnant mother, and there was no room at the inn. We think of a manger. We think of shepherds. We think of wise men. We think of lowing oxen and and quiet little donkeys gathered around. And, And we have a beautiful romantic picture of a baby born in less than ideal circumstances, but that's as far as it goes for many people. And what we need to understand is this, that that baby is the Word become flesh. Charles Wesley, in one of his great hymns, puts it as follows. He says, God was contracted to a span. That's a span. God was contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. There is wonder here. There is mystery here. We are dealing with immensities here. Don't trivialize Christmas. Now, the question is this. If the Word became flesh, if if there's any truth in that at all, if it is not just the most fantastic, romantic nonsense you ever heard in your life, if there's any truth to this, why in the world would he do it? And John explains to us. He said, this Word was Jesus Christ. 
He came in the person of Jesus Christ. And we looked carefully and we saw his glory. He said, in other words, we understood who he was and we understood why he'd come. And the reason that he'd come was that he might reveal God to men. He was the expression of a rational idea. He'd come to reveal God to humanity in order that humanity might be reconciled to God. And to do that, the Word became flesh. Now John takes us a step further, and he says in verse 10, he was in the world. Now, we, note, we need to note that word world very, very carefully. It's one of John's favorite words. By the way, just a little word here for those of you who study the Bible seriously, and I hope you all do. You don't just read it occasionally, you study it assiduously. If you read and study John's gospel, you read the prologue, and it's rather like the overture to an opera. Now, this isn't a very good illustration because most of you wouldn't be dragged kicking and screaming to an opera, but let me explain about it anyway. If you were to go to an opera, before it gets going, the orchestra comes in and they start playing while the stage is in darkness and they play the overture. And the overture introduces all the musical themes that will then be further developed throughout the course of the opera. The prologue of John's Gospel does that. You'll find all the major themes of the whole Gospel introduced in these first 18 verses. One of those themes is the world. Now, when John talks about the world, it can be a little confusing. Let me give you two examples of the confusion. John says in chapter 3, verse 16 of his gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But in his first letter, John's first epistle, he then says, don't love the world or anything that is in the world. Now we say, John, you just told us that God loves the world. You've told us to be followers of God and do what God does. And then you tell us not to do what God does because we're told not to love the world. Isn't this a mutually contradictory statement? God loved the world that he gave his son, but you don't love it. You mustn't love it. Well, the answer to that apparent contradiction is this, that the word world is used in many, many different ways in John's gospel. It, that shouldn't be a problem because we do that in English as well. When our son David was a little boy, he had lots of toys, but his favorite toy was a cardboard box in which he spent most of his life. And sometimes the cardboard box was an airplane, sometimes it was a ship, and sometimes it was a castle, all kinds of things. And we would look at him and say, he's in his own little world. You see? And then our daughter eventually falls in love and she gets engaged and she tells us that she just thinks the world of Greg. And then we read the other day about some executives and their world had come crashing down around their ears. You see, we use the, the idea of the world in a variety of ways. How does John use it? It's very important we understand this because we're told that the word became flesh and intentionally came into the world. Well, the Greek word that is used here for world is cosmos. Cosmos. And it's spelt with a K, but we've anglicized it and we spell it now with a C. And we talk about the cosmos and we mean the universe by, by that. The word cosmos in the Greek means ornament. 
Cosmos is the opposite of chaos. So when somebody uses cosmos, from which we get actually cosmetic, or when somebody uses a cosmetic, they're trying to produce something beautiful out of chaos. (laughs) You get my drift. So men, be patient with your wives. If it is taking them a long time, it's chaos they're working with, and they're trying to produce an ornament, something beautiful. There's the basic idea. Cosmetic comes from cosmos. So the original idea of of cosmos was the beautiful ornament that God has made to display his glory. And that beautiful ornament is the universe. But human beings who live in this universe and a certain part of it called planet Earth are very egocentric. And because they use words, they decided that in actual fact that the world was planet Earth. Don't worry about the whole universe. It's all here. This is where the action is. So now world becomes the planet Earth. So we read books now on world history. Nothing to do with the universe, just planet Earth. Because humanity sort of dominates the, the, the planet Earth that they live on, world began to mean the human beings who populate the world. So one day the opponents of Jesus said, the whole world is gone after him. What they meant was the people are following him. And so world starts out meaning universe, then it means planet Earth, then it means the people who live on planet Earth, And then, because the dominant attitude of human beings in general is disinterest at best or antagonism towards God or hostility towards God, world, worldly attitudes came to mean the hostile or the antipathetic attitude of humanity towards God. That is why Jesus says, now is the prince of this world judged. That is why he said to his disciples, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The universe didn't hate him. The, world, the universe didn't hate them. The, the planet Earth didn't hate them. It wasn't humanity that he was talking about. He was talking about the underlying attitude of antipathy towards God that is the attitude of the world. So we're talking about an environment in which human beings live that is pervaded by evil that is shot through with sin that is full of deep problems. And here's the amazing statement. The word became flesh. That's incredible to start off with. But even more incredible is that he became flesh by coming into the world. He intentionally came into an environment that he knew was hostile towards the God whom he came to make known. That's the amazing thing. Now, the question that comes to mind then is, well, how did the world that he had made, remember, he made all things. Without him was not anything made that is made. How did the world that he had made become that kind of a world? We need to understand this if we do understand our world. Remember, when God created the world, he examined everything that he'd created, and he said, it is good. It is good. It is very good. But now the world that Jesus comes into is not good. It is not good. It is not very good. There are many good things in it, 
There are many beautiful things in it, but there is much that is fundamentally and drastically wrong with it. What happened? The word to describe the beauty and the order and the magnificence and the majesty of the world in its pristine state, the word used to describe that is a Hebrew word called shalom. Shalom in modern Hebrew usage simply means peace. It's a greeting. Instead of saying hi or good morning, they would say shalom to you. But the underlying meaning of shalom is much deeper. Let me give you a quotation from a wonderful book called Not the Way Things Ought to Be. If you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you to get it. This is what the Dr. Plantinger, who wrote this book, says. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. There's a picture of Shalom. Look at some of the expressions that he uses. Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Where natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. You get the picture? It's all about justice It's all about righteousness. It's all about goodness. It's all about beauty. It's all about harmony. You've got God and man in absolute harmony. You've got mankind in absolute harmony with God. You've got man and nature in harmony. You've got nature in harmony with mankind. You've got nature in harmony with God and God in harmony with mankind. It's order, it's an ornament. It's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's gorgeous, it's glorious. That's shalom. That is how God made this world. But part of what God made in this world is called mankind. Mankind was not made as a machine. Neither was he made as a plant. Neither was he made as an animal. Mankind was made as humanity, which means that he had the ability to identify with and relate to every other dimension of creation, but in a paramount way, he had the ability to relate to God. How does a human being relate to God in a state of shalom? The answer is in loving, trusting obedience. That's what produces the ideal state. That's what shalom is all about. Now, you can't ask human beings to behave in obedience unless you give them a will. And you cannot ask people to engage in obedience in the exercise of their will without giving them a choice. If you don't, you finish up with the ludicrous farce of a communist election where people were totally free to exercise their will in voting for any of the one candidates. If you're going to have a choice, you need a will. 
if you're going to have a will and a choice, you need to have options. And God gave the options. The options were very straightforward. Here are the options. Love me, honor me, serve me, live in harmony with me, and in harmony with yourself, and in harmony with each others, and in harmony with nature, and you'll enjoy shalom. Disobey me, don't trust me, stop loving me, go your own way, and all hell will break loose. Humanity will be out of sync with God. Nature will be out of sync with God. Nature will be out of sync with humanity. And shalom will be shattered. And that's our world. You don't need me to illustrate the perversion that has crept in. You don't need me to give you examples of the corruption. You don't need me to tell you about the disintegration that characterizes our world. It's called, in a simple expression, the fall. To understand our world, we understand the wonder and the majesty, the glory and the beauty and the order of creation. And we also understand the horror and the abysmal results of the fall. And we see the two living cheek by jowl, hand in hand. That's our world. Now, when God saw what had happened to his world, it would have been perfectly understandable if he had said, well, that didn't work. They blew that. So let's wipe that one out. Just wipe the slate clean. (laughs) Plenty more planets. We can just tilt that a little bit and spin it a bit faster and get it a bit closer to the sun so that life can develop again. And we'll start it all over again. But this time, we won't make human beings capable of messing up like they did last time. He could have done that. No problem at all. But he didn't. What he did was incredible. He looked at his world and he said, let's fix it. And he turned to his son, and he said, you'll need to go down there. And the son, the word, who in the beginning had been in a state of eternal existence in intimate fellowship with the father, the creator and upholder of all things, the source of life and the sort of light said, yes. And he came to that kind of a world that didn't want him. I'm talking about Christmas. This is Christmas, folks. Now, this is how John puts it. He said, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, but the world did not recognize him. You say, well, how could they? You know, how could they figure that out? I have difficulty figuring it out now. Well, one thing we need to recognize is this, that John is speaking particularly of the specific section of the world that Jesus came into, the Jewish nation. And so he amplifies it. He says he came into his own situation, but his own people did not receive him. It's an amazing story, an amazing story. Now, for centuries, the prophets had been forewarning he would come. John the Baptist in the immediate past had been there and he'd been saying, listen, the time is coming that Isaiah the prophet predicted. 
and I am his forerunner, and he is coming. And on one occasion, he even pointed to Jesus and said, there he is. There he is, that's him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could not have been more clear. People came to John and they said, are you the Messiah? I said, no, I'm not. Well, who is the Messiah? I keep telling you who he is. There he is. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They did not recognize his true worth. They did not understand who it was who was in their midst. Think about that for a minute. Because I want to suggest something to you. That nothing has changed. That there are many, many people in the Christianized West. I'm not talking about the regions of the world where they've never heard the gospel yet. I mean, that's another issue. That's a huge problem that will not go away. I'm talking about the Christianized West. I believe that there are many, many people in the Christianized West who still don't recognize who really came at Christmas. The Word became flesh. And because they don't recognize Him, they don't receive Him. And they reject Him. And that is what happened at Christmas time. I'm trying to think of an illustration of the poignancy of this. I was thinking of the Vietnam War. I have friends who fought in Vietnam, and they've told me about the fact that they, they, they really had a, a, a struggle with their own consciences as to whether they should go to Vietnam or just go to Canada. And many of them said, we, we'll go. We will do what our country is calling us to do. And they went. And they understood the great turmoil that was going on back here in America during the Vietnam War. Incidentally, when we were in Vietnam, they call it the American War. We call it the Vietnam War. They call it the American War. And when they went over there, the, the men suffered terribly. Many of them were injured, many of them were killed. Many who were injured or not injured but had a rough time there, they came back to their own people. And to their horror, they discovered that they were not welcomed. There was no ticker tape welcome for them, no great parades like there were at the end of the First World War, the Second World War, or to a lesser extent, the Korean War. It was just as if people didn't want to know. They didn't welcome them. In fact, it even got worse. Some of them went to their own families and they actually found that their families didn't even want them back. And they discovered to their horror the awful pain and anguish of being outright rejected. And many of them bear the pain to this day. There's a picture. The Word became flesh. Came into this world. They didn't recognize Him. And they didn't want Him. Because they didn't see who he really was. Then John points something else out to us. As he develops his gospel, he explains to us why they began to reject him. Why they turned away from him. There are a number of incidents in the gospel. For instance, on one occasion, the Lord Jesus explains to them, after he's fed the 5,000 families with five loaves and two fishes, he explains that he is the bread of life. 
And then he develops this idea, and he says, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, some people have translated this to mean the communion, and that you receive Christ by taking the communion. I think, I think this is a construction that the scriptures will not really bear that what he's really saying here is this, unless you come into a personal relationship with me, where you feed on me, you don't have life. And that fits in with the rest of the gospel teaching. Now, many of the disciples heard this, and they said, that's a hard saying. And they no more followed him. They turned their backs on him. They walked away. They rejected him. They, they, they rejected him. Why? They rejected him because they were very interested in what he was saying, and they were very intrigued about what he was doing, and they thought there were a lot of very fascinating things about what was going on, but they didn't really understand who he was. But what they did understand was this, that he was saying some things that they would not embrace. In other words, they would have him on their terms, but not on his. It was ever thus. He came into his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. Why did they reject him? Answer, because they wanted him on their terms, not his. There's another occasion. The leaders who were outright in their rejection of Jesus, they, they, they were saying, now look, we've got to stop Jesus. He's getting a lot of people interested in him. And this is a movement that the Romans could get worried about. And if they get worried about it, they'll move in here and they'll take away our place and our nation. And we don't want our place and we don't want our nation. We don't want our lives disrupting. So we've got to get rid of him. And that's why people reject Jesus then, and that's why they reject him now. Because he says some things that don't fit neatly into their presuppositions, and they might have to change their minds. And he makes some statements, and he presents some challenges, and he gives some instructions and orders that would require a change, and they don't want to change. They'd like their lives fixed. They understand the fall in their own lives. They see the perversion. At times, they feel really guilty about it. They see the corruption. They feel bad about it after they've done something where they've been corrupted or they've corrupted another person. They see the things that are falling apart, and they want it fixed. But amazingly, they want it fixed without the awful necessity of being changed. So they reject him. And there's a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He said, I'm interested in eternal life. Tell me how I get it. Jesus did, and he said, no way. And he turned his back and he left. They rejected him all the time. Whenever I think of this, I'm reminded of an event that took place many, many years ago in England. In, in those days, we were very conscious of the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of young people never went near a church. But we also discovered something else by polling the young people. They were very interested in Jesus and totally turned off the church. So the obvious answer was, well, don't try and get them in the church. Take Jesus to them. Where were they? They were in the coffee bars. So we decided we'd open a coffee bar for them. All the churches in the town that where we started this experiment said, this is a wonderful thing to do. We're with you. We said, okay, lend us your buildings. And they all agreed, and they said, no. 
But fortunately, there was a man who owned a brewery. And he got in touch with us and he said, I have a brewer's warehouse. And I understand you're trying to do something with these kids and you need a building. You can have my brewery if you want it. And I said, I've always wanted a brewery. <laughs> so we turned this brewery into something we called the Bar Non. <laughs> very, very clever word then. <laughs> bar Non. And we opened our doors, turned into a coffee bar. And we went to all the schools in the town and we told them about this new coffee bar where they'd come and we could talk about Jesus. And they could ask questions about Jesus. We had to close the doors the first night after we got a thousand kids in there. They stayed till about three o'clock in the morning. Every night of the week, we were working till two or three in the morning with these kids. On the hour, for 10 minutes, I would get up, Jill would get up, and we'd talk to this great crowd of kids just for 10 minutes. Then 50 minutes, play their music, answer their questions. Then 10 minutes, talk to them. 50 minutes. This would go on for four or five times during the hour, two, three in the morning. We're wrapping up one evening. Place is empty, just sweeping out the debris after they've been there. I see a shadowy figure coming towards me, has a black leather jacket on and white tight blue jeans, long blonde hair over right down his back and right over his face. Comes hunched up towards me. We'd had a lot of trouble with kids coming in with, with razors and, and flick knives and broken beer bottles and motorcycle chains wrapped around their fists. The police wouldn't come in. It was an, it, they were, it was an ugly youth scene. So all my talks had illustrations of when I was in the Royal Marine Commandos. <laughs> it helped just a little, just a little distance then. This guy came towards me. I thought he was carrying a knife, so I was very careful as he came towards me. And then he started talking. I realized he was talking because I could see the hair blowing out <laughs> in front of his mouth. And he said, why were you talking about me? I said, what? He said, why were you talking about me? Who told you about me? I said, I don't know anything about you. He said, of course you know about me. He said, you got up there and you've been talking about me. I said, I don't even know who you are. I said, what's your name? He said, Vivian. Uh, he said, I play with the pretty things. The top group was the Beatles. The second group was the Rolling Stones. The third group was the Pretty Things. This was the drummer from the Pretty Things. Vivian was his name. Vivian told me who he was. I said, I don't know anything about you. All I've been telling you is what the Bible says. He said, all that's in the Bible? I said, yeah. He said, I've never seen a Bible. So I got one out of my pocket. I said, here. He stepped back. I said, it won't hurt you. Would you like this one? No, 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 no. He said, I couldn't read the Bible couldn't read the Bible. He said, the Bible must be true. I said, why do you say that? He said, it's true about me. He said, everything you've said is true about me. He said, that's why I wonder how you found out about me. I said, I'm just telling you what God says about you. He said, it's true. So we talked a bit more, and I said, look, you've heard what I've been saying. You've been here all week. He said, yes, I've been here every night. He said, I've stayed till two or three in the morning, every morning. So I've been listening, I've been asking questions. I said, well, let me ask you three questions. Do you need Christ? Oh, yes, he said. Oh, yes. I said, do you want him? He said, if you need something, you want it. Do you need Christ? He said, yes. I said, do you want him? He said, yeah. I said, one final question. Now, I, I want you to see what I'm doing here. I'm making an intellectual appeal to him, first of all. Do you need him? Do you understand your need? Do you understand how he alone is the one who can meet it? Do you understand that? He said, do you need him? He said, yes. I said, okay. 
do you want it? That's, that's an appeal to the emotion. Do you, do you have a deep desire to see that which is wrong being rectified? And do you have a deep desire to see him able to do in your life what he says he alone can do? He said, yeah. I said, okay, will you receive him? That was an appeal to the volitional dimension of him. For a genuine conversion to take place, there needs to be an intellectual, emotional, and volitional transaction happen. People have an intellectual conversion that doesn't change their lives. People have an emotional upheaval that doesn't last 10 minutes. But when intellectually, I say, oh, oh, I need him. And emotionally, I say, oh, oh, I want him. And volitionally, I say, oh, how I will receive him. That is how I receive him. This is what he said. To as many as receive him, to them gives he the authority to be called the children of God. And you're not born like human beings are born through the activity of parents, through a genetic development, not even through sexual activity. You are born into a new experience by God himself. By God himself. So I said to him, do you need him? He said, yes. Do you want him? He said, yes. I said, will you receive him? He stuck his hands back in his jeans and he hunched his shoulders and he hung his head. And he walked away from me about 10 paces. And then he stopped and he turned around. And he said, Mr., I need him. And I want him. But will I receive him? No. He would make too many changes. And he turned and he walked away. I never saw him again. And that happens all the time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. The glory like the one and only. But he came into the world and the world was made by him and the world didn't recognize him. And he came to his own people and his own folks said, we don't want you. But to as many as received him, to those who believed into him, those who intellectually understood who he was and emotionally said, oh, I want who he is. And then, as an act of the will, would yield themselves to him. To them gave he the authority to become the children of God. I'm talking about Christmas. It's all about recognizing who he is, desiring who he is, and being willing to submit to who he is so he can fix it. And deal with the shattering of shalom. And draw you into the life of the kingdom. Of delight and fullness and goodness and righteousness and harmony. That's the message of Christmas. Let's pray together. Now I'm going to pray a prayer here that will help you go through those steps. You can make it your own prayer, if you wish. Dear Lord Jesus, the eternal word 
creator of all things, including me. The source of life, including mine. The reason for being. You have been in this world for a long, long time. A lot longer than me. And I've not known you. And I've not received you. And at times I've outright rejected you. And I'm so sorry. I'm beginning to understand who you are. And I'm beginning to understand what I am. And I'm beginning to grasp what's wrong with this world. That things aren't the way they ought to be. Beginning to grasp it. And I realized that you came to fix it one person at a time. And I'd like you, because I understand these things, I'd like you because I desire you and all that you mean, I'd like you to take my life and change it. Move it in the right direction. Do with it what needs to be done. I believe you're as good as your word. I believe you're who you said you were. I believe you give what you offer. I believe you keep the promises you make. And I therefore believe into you. I trust myself to you. And I thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.